Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes, and tonight we're going to be going over the book of Nahum, part two. I think we're only going to have three parts to this book, so we'll be finished up next week. So for those of you watching from home, we are no longer in the Hayes household. Uh, we are now meeting at the Heart of Junction Church in downtown Grand Junction, Colorado. So they're kind enough to let us use their church building to meet. Instead of going upstairs in the auditorium, I opted to be down here in the basement right next to the kitchen with all of the snacks and hot drinks. So uh, for those of you that are new, uh, that wooden door in the back, there's a hallway down there, and that's where the kids are down there to the left. And don't go through that wood door, but make a right, and that's where the restrooms are. So everyone knows where that is. And we have coffee and hot tea and different beverages and snacks. And thank you, everyone, for bringing them. So help yourself to those uh, as we go. Uh, with that, <clears throat> let's uh, let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump in and, and see where this goes. So Lord, uh, we do love you greatly and we thank you very much for <sighs> just being God and letting us come to you in prayer. God, we're so grateful that when things are good, we can come to you and thank you. And when things are bad, we can come to you and ask for your help and your provision. And God, we're so grateful that you hear our prayers all the time. God, you are our creator and our savior. You are awesome and powerful and, and we love you. And we just ask God that you would please guide and direct everything we do here this evening. Lord, please be with uh, many folks that cannot be with us tonight because their health is not good. Uh, some folks are out of town. Uh, Lord, certainly uh, be with all the folks that will be traveling in the near future. Um, and Lord, we, we do hope and pray that this uh, message, uh, you know, going through the, going over the internet reaches someone that it can help to encourage someone, strengthen someone uh, to learn the Bible and, and hopefully encourage them to study the Bible on their own. And God, we just want to thank you that we can have a place to come. Uh, it's a blessing for our family. Uh, it's a, a nice big place where we can fit a lot of people and we can be comfortable. And we're grateful for that, Lord. So we just ask that you would bless our time here and help this little church to grow, help us to reach people, help us to get the lost saved and uh, help the saved to get baptized and to take a step forward in their Christian life and just move on to what you want them to do next, Lord. We, we just want to be a help to people. Please uh, bless everything that I say and do and speak through me and give us a soft heart to hear your message, Lord. We love you and in Christ's name we pray. Oh, and real quick, Lord, please be with Liam. Uh, we are praying for a little boy who's going through it right now. Um, he is just really, um, you know, in a bad way. He's very sick. I believe he's up in Michigan. Uh, and, uh, Lord, we, we just want you to supernaturally hear that, heal that little boy, please comfort, um, <clears throat> his mom and dad, Jake and Mandy, please comfort his grandparents. Uh, please bring comfort to his uh, siblings as I'm sure it's a very scary situation for that little boy who's in the hospital now. And, uh, God, we just trust you. Uh, you're the one that can do it. So, uh, please, uh, uh heal that boy and, uh, and make it a miracle that, um, draws people to you. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So Nahum chapter number two, we went over kind of the history of Assyria. We talked about Nineveh, the city, and we're going to talk more about it because the city of Nineveh, it is a very famous city throughout history. 
it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And we read about it in the New Testament. We read about it in the Gospels. It's brought up many times. So let's jump into what we were talking about last week in chapter 1. I think we were in Nahum chapter 1, verse 6. 6 or 7 is where we stopped. The chapters are short. Chapter 1 has 15 verses. Chapter 2 has 13 verses. So we're going to be through this book, you know, faster than, faster than most books we get through. So uh, let's see. In, uh, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 6, we read... Uh, who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Now, it uses the pronoun his, 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 and him. Who are we talking about? That's right, we're talking about God. Now, remember, we are not polytheistic. Polytheistic meaning what? That's right, more than one God, many gods. The Old Testament and the New Testament, that's all one book written by one God. So whenever you hear this idea of the fury and the wrath that's going to be poured out, who can we ascribe that to? It is God. God's made up of three parts. Who do we ascribe the mean part to? Right. Isn't that funny? Everyone says God the Father. Who do we ascribe the nice, good time, fun-loving, hip and cool, yeah, good time, rock and roll, you know, part two? Who's that? You got it, Jesus. Who's on all the T-shirts? Okay, Jesus. Jesus is on, is on all the... Uh, the merchandising. But when it says, who can stand before his indignation? Let me ask you this. In the end days, who's going to be who's going to be sitting on the throne judging the world? Wash? Jesus. Specifically, it is Jesus. Okay, who can abide in the fierceness of who his anger? Who created hell? Wash? It was Jesus. Who's the creator? John chapter 1, verse 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus is the creator. Hell judges the past people into hell. Now, that doesn't make many t-shirts, but those are the facts. It's poured out like fire, thrown down by him. When we think of fire raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah, do we think of Jesus doing it? Of course not. He was too busy being nice and forgiving everyone and just loving people. Okay, it is the same God. We believe in one God. God the Father and God the Son are not two different people. We have to overcome that misconception. That's the reason we struggle and the reason the New Testament is taught incorrectly so often. It's the idea that, oh, Jesus is just here to be our buddy, and that's it. Wayne. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's because it's a prophecy, you know, so it's not specific, but I'm not sure. Depends, I think, on, on the Bible, you know. I'm not sure. Yeah. 
I will ask Nahum one day. Nahum might have capitalized it, but I don't know if the Bible publishers in 1611 followed in his footsteps. All right, so let's look at verse 7. Here's the other side of the coin. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. So in verse 7, this is a reminder to those that loves God. What is God saying? He's saying, I know who you are. You don't have anything to worry about. Okay? God knows those that love him. He knows who you are, and you can trust him. So think of this. The same almighty power that is hopefully scaring the Ninevites, because that's what the prophet was sent there to do, was to tell them what's coming, and it was not a good message. That same almighty power of the terror and destruction and the um, all of those things, <clears throat> that same power is going to be employed for the protection and the satisfaction of his own people. So God is reminding those that love him, you have nothing to worry about. I'm explaining this destruction that's coming, but my power and my wrath that I'm talking about here, that is the same power I use to protect those that love me. So God's just reminding everybody. Now, why does God explain this in verse 7? Well, it's because of verse 8. God's wrath in verse 8, will be an overrunning flood that will make an utter end of the wicked. So when this happens, God wants us to remember verse 7, that we find safety in him. Now, this is, this is hard for us to maybe think about in America today because I have had very few occasions where I was actually concerned that I was going to die. But when we go through really hard times, when we go through really scary times, when there's destruction and God's wrath is being poured out, or when we're just going through difficult circumstances, we got to remember that God is there to protect those that love him. He does not forget his people. Why is God destroying Nineveh? That's a good answer. The sin of Nineveh, there was plenty of it. That's why Jonah didn't like that God was saving it. Specifically, a little more specifically, what do you think? What's that? It was idolatry. That was the main sin in Nineveh that he hated. Okay, they did. Uh, They were going in the right direction when Jonah preached, and they turned, and then they turned back to their old ways. Okay, but one other thing that the nation of Assyria did is number one, they went to attack Judah. They went to attack. So God used Assyria for what purpose? Now this, yeah. No, he did not use them to destroy Judah. Go ahead, Wash. What do you think? Yes. When Israel, the nation of Israel split into the northern and the southern kingdoms, then God used Assyria to 
yeah, wipe out the Northern Kingdom. So they went in and they took them captive and they laid waste to the Northern Kingdom. Then the nation of Assyria got it in their head. They're like, well, we had such a good time doing that to the Northern Kingdom. Maybe we should go back and attack Judah. Well, that was not what God wanted them to do. That was not part of God's plan. And that's when we get into that part in 2 Kings 19 that we'll mention again, because it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it did not go well for them. Okay, God wipes out their army. They go back to Assyria with their tail between their legs. But when the Assyrian, when the nation of Assyria was in power, Israel was under their control. And the nation of Assyria and Nineveh were very mean, very cruel to everybody, including all of God's people. They exacted a tax from them. They oppressed them in any way that they could. And God tells us later on that I am coming after you because you came after my people. Now, what prophecy does that fulfill? I'm going to see if I can find it. This is just off the top of my head. Actually, you know what? I should probably just look it up using my phone. So God messed with the nation of Israel, or I'm sorry, the nation of Assyria messed with the nation of Israel, and God said, nope, that's not going to stand. No, but that is a good point. So God spared the southern kingdom because of King David. That's where King David was from, the nation of Judah, or the tribe of Judah, I should say. So that's why uh, God decided that uh, he was going to keep the southern kingdom around. He took them through the Babylonian captivity. But there is a promise in the Old Testament, and I'm trying to see if I can find it. So go with me to Genesis. I think it's Genesis 15. This is an important one, and this is one that we're going to see again. Uh, prophecies concerning what? Zephaniah? Go to Genesis chapter 12. Here it is. I found it. <clears throat> um, is that in a study Bible? It's giving us some notes. I'm not sure what that one's referencing, but let me show you this because this is an important one. Everyone, Genesis 12, 13. When you're there, look up at me so I know I can read it when you get there. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. <laughs> that was a joke. Chapter 12, verse 3. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. <clears throat> and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. That was. It was a covenant God made with Abraham. It was a promise he made to Abraham, and thereby the entire nation of Israel. God said, if you mess with my chosen people, I will come after you. And if you bless them, I will bless you. And remember, that has nothing to do with whether the nation of Israel deserves it or not. That has nothing to do with whether they are obedient to God or not. Because they have been 
horribly disobedient throughout times in world history, and they have been wonderfully obedient to God. But God said, if you curse the nation of Israel, I will curse you. And if you bless the nation of Israel, I will bless you. If you ask me, Patrick, why is America still standing? Why have we not gone the way of the dodo bird? I will tell you that it is simply because we have been an ally to the nation of Israel. Not always a great one, but on the books, we are an ally to Israel, and we are for them as a nation more than any other country is. And they are our only ally over there. And I know you're going to say, well, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is our ally. All right. (laughs) I understand that we say that. Israel is one of the only nations in the Middle East that is uh, that is for us. Okay. And we bless Israel. And I believe that God has been blessing America because of that. And we've seen it throughout history. The nations that attacked Israel and went out and, and went to destroy Israel are gone. Where are the Assyrians now? Do you know any, do you know any Babylonians? Nope. Okay. Those are two groups that ruled over the nation of Israel and persecuted them horribly. Now, do you know any Persians? The Persians were the next world empire. Who are the Persians today? They're Iran. The nation of Iran still exists. Why? How did the Persians bless the Jews? What's that? It was after Babylon. Nehemiah and Ezra. At the end of the 70 years of captivity, it was the Persian empire that took over Babylon And they set the Jews free, and they sent them away with all the money they needed and the protection they needed and all the resources they needed, and they said, go build your temple. How do you think that made God feel? Yeah, gold star, okay, for the Persians. They... Anything you want. You got it. This tiny little nation smaller than the state of New Jersey, completely insignificant, whole bunch of slaves. Now, I'm a big fan of history. I don't know if you guys like history. I read a lot of history. Do you want to know how many times an entire nation of slaves is told, yeah, go ahead, you're free now, and by the way, here's everything you need to be successful. You want to know how many times that happens in the world? Yeah, pretty infrequent, right? Persians did it. The Persians did it with the nation of Israel. They said, go, and we will support you with everything you need. Here are letters. Go to the king's forest. Get all the lumber you need. They will cut it and mill it and hand it to you, and you you go and do what you need. Okay, that's what happened with the Persians. After the Persians came in the Greeks. What was special about Alexander the Great and the Greeks? Something special about his nation that was different from so many others. Moses? They let everyone do their own thing. Speaking of people spiritually, most nations would come in and they would destroy your temples and they would force you to go to their religion. You had to worship their gods. Alexander the Great was famous for saying, I don't know who the real God is. So we will destroy none of the temples because one of them is of the true God and I do not want him against me. So again, Where are the Greeks today? They still exist. Okay, there's a massive difference between those who curse Israel and those who bless Israel. Okay, 
So this is why the Assyrians are wiped off the map, because they were oppressors of Israel. Okay, as a nation. Let's go to... Let's read verse 9 to the end. Uh, what, do, what do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now I will break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave for thou art vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. So in verse 9, Nahum asked the Ninevites, what are you thinking? Do you really think you are going to outwit and overpower God? Now, it's a rhetorical question, but... Nahum is asking this because the Ninevites are actually trying to devise a plan to defeat God and his will. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. This is an important one. Psalm chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I write them on the board, just so you guys know. Anytime I tell you to turn somewhere, it is written up here. Yep. Okay, we read, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, we can all wrap our heads around the idea that someone doesn't like God and doesn't like his commandments and decides, I ain't doing any of that. But to think that there are actually people who are planning a physical assault on God and how they can throw him off and his power and defeat him sounds maddening. But that's what the Bible says. And that's why Nahum is asking the Ninevites, what are you guys thinking? Where, what do you, where do you think you can run? What power do you think you possess where you're going to be able to uh, defeat God? We read, affliction shall not rise up a second time. In, uh, in verse 9. What do you think that means? Yeah. Okay. It's not going to happen a second time. It's not going to be needed. You guys are going to be completely destroyed. Do you understand? God's not going to have to come back and spank you again. This is it. 
There is no round two. And, and we haven't gotten there, but do you understand that after Nineveh was destroyed, it was not found again till 1850? Not a trace of it. Not an artifact. Do you know that for years, people used that as a reason to discredit the Bible and say that the Bible's not true, you can't believe it, because this city, this massive city described in Jonah and Nahum called Nineveh never existed. There is no record that we can find anywhere of this city, and therefore the Bible is a lie. They weren't able to find anything because God said you will be gone. 612 BC was when it was destroyed. So over 2,000 years, and understand that even in the time of Christ, they were talking about Nineveh, but it was only the Jews that even believed that city existed. They found the entire city. Oh, yeah. It was one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the history of the world. They excavated Nineveh from 1850 till 1930. It took 80 years. It was 1,900 acres of a city that they dug up. The Greek army had tens of thousands of troops that marched right over its location and never even knew there was a city there. There was nothing. You could not find anything. When God said, this is it, I am destroying you. He meant from history. It was literally covered with dirt. You, you couldn't find a brick that made up the walls. And then when they started digging, they found all of it. All right, let's look at verse 10. So here God is explaining how bad it'll be. God describes the Ninevites in three ways. In verse 10, what is, how does God describe the Ninevites? In verse 10, three ways. As drunk men, thorns, and we'll go over this, fully dry stubble. So let's look at those. Thorns. Who here has ever maybe as a kid, fallen into a thorn bush or lost something in there and tried to get it out? Okay, what's the problem? Well, yeah, obviously, but what else? Okay. They do. Okay, let's move away from thorns a little bit. How do thorns grow? Is it a nice tree with branches that... No. When thorns, when you run into a, th a patch of thorns... They're, yeah, they grow everywhere like vines. Can you grab one piece and cut it off and pull it out cleanly? No, it's all over the place. It entangles one another where it gets in each other's way. There's no way to remove it cleanly. Okay, so they entangle one another. 
Okay, drunk men. Let me ask you this. How hard is it to beat up a drunk man? Not very hard. Not when you're sober, (laughs) right? It's like they fight in slow motion. And then fully dried stubble. How well will that burn? Yeah, right? When you're burning a field, you want to be careful if it's too dry and it's, you know, there's too much of it that's broken down on the ground because it'll take off and just, it'll go. So God's describing Nineveh in these ways, explaining that when we come to destroy you, this is your problem. You're going to fight as drunk men. You're going to be as fully dried stubble that we throw a match on, and you're going to be as thorns and tangled, uh, uh, tangled up with one another. All right. <clears throat> Uh, Let's see, verses 11 and 12 here. Uh, Who are the three characters talked about in verse 12? It says, they be quiet, they be cut down when he shall pass through, though I have afflicted. So we have have three characters talked about in verse 12. Let's read this. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. Who are the three groups talked about here? One thing that I've never liked about the Bible is sometimes the way it is written, it is difficult to discern who it is talking about if it has multiple characters, you know. So, okay, so here's the thing, Nick. You ready for this? We don't know at this point that it's the Babylonians, right? We find out later that the Babylonians, but the answer is correct. The Babylonians in this verse is the one delivering the justice. The other group are the Assyrians, the one receiving the justice. And then the last one is God. Okay, so thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down. So they are the Assyrians. When he shall pass through, he being Babylon, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. Okay, so we have three characters in verses 11 and 12. Uh, So the, okay, so now this is a, this is a strange one here. It says, when he shall pass through. Okay, so it says you're going to be cut down when he shall pass through. Who is delivering the justice here? Who is the deliverer of justice? And and I know that I'm terrible at asking questions, and I ask questions, and there's 10 right answers. What's that? It is Nebuchadnezzar. That's the instrument. And who was the... And it's God that is using Nebuchadnezzar as the instrument of delivering justice. Okay, now I want you to get I want you to get this idea in your head of 
the destroyer. Turn with me to Exodus 12, verse 23. This is a neat rabbit trail that's worth looking at to get a little bit of an idea of how this works. Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. And we've all read this. It's a very famous portion of the Bible. It's talking about the Passover. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lentil and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in onto your houses to smite you. Now, here's my question. Who was doing the killing? Go ahead. Give it a guess, Mac. Okay, so the guess we have is an angel. Okay, we have the idea of Jesus. Okay, so that's angel of death. Though I want you to follow me here. When we read it, at first, it sounds like, well, God's doing it, right? It says, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lentil and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in onto your house and smite you. Can we all agree that there are two characters in this verse? There is the Lord and there is the destroyer. We oftentimes mix that up. Now, what we guess was the angel of death is what we've heard and Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's the angel of death. The only place that it describes who this is, is it calls him the destroyer. Carlos, you got a question? So here's what I'm going to tell you. And you can disagree with me on this. This is conjecture. This is just the way I read it. There are two characters. One is doing the destroying. What's the other one doing? Okay, what's it? Okay, how about this? Wayne, what would you call that person? What's their job? What's their title? What are they doing? Okay, think biblically now. You have two, two characters here. One is going through and it's like, that one's the guilty one, dead. Is this one guilty? Yeah, dead. How about this one? The judge. Is it fair to say the guy that's saying yes, no, that's the judge. God is there with the destroyer, and he is saying, nope, there's blood. That one doesn't get destroyed. No blood here. That one gets destroyed. And we know that this is one of the best pictures in the whole Bible of us, right, standing before the Lord and the Lord God knows there is the blood of Christ on his soul. He's innocent. There's no blood on the soul of this one in the fire. Right? That famous hymn, and when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. That is, this is the picture of what's going to happen in the end times. It is the blood of Christ that's applied to our soul, just like the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorposts back in ancient Egypt. God is not killing these people. God is the judge. Let me ask you this. In the end times, 
when there's a throne, the great white throne of judgment, who's sitting on that throne? Jesus is sitting on the throne. Who's casting everybody into the lake of fire? No. Yeah, there's an angel there with them. It says that the devil is escorted and paraded out in front of everybody and cast into the lake of fire and everyone gets to see it. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus has workers to do that. In the old West, when there was a hanging, was it that, was it the judge that went out and put the bag on him? There was an executioner. It is no different in Exodus 12, 23. There are two characters. One is the destroyer. One is God. In this verse, what we see is that God is the judge over Nineveh and the Assyrians but he is not the executioner. Who's the executioner? The Babylonians. We've, we've left Exodus. Now we're talking about the Assyrians. <laughs> it's called an analogy. So we use one story over here and we make a point and then we use that point to help drive home the point of another story. Okay, so over here we have... The bad guys are Nineveh, God is the judge, and the destroyer, okay, the executioner is going to be the Babylonians. Over here, we have the Egyptians are the bad guys, God is still the judge, destroyer, we're assuming is an angel. Honestly, if someone wanted to say it was Jesus, I mean, I couldn't argue it. You know, I don't know how we discern other than it doesn't specifically say. Carlos, what's your question? I have no problem saying Jesus was the judge in Exodus 12. That's fine. It seems like every time we read about the future and there is a judge, we know of two times and Jesus is the judge both times. So, you know, I'm fine with that. Problem is I wasn't there and it doesn't explain it well. So we know it was God. Okay. Which part? How, I don't know. Did they flip a coin? I, I don't know. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> let's keep going. Um, one more thing, if you're taking notes and you just want to look, look into this further, in Revelation chapter 20, you find out that it, it was an angel that had a key to the bottomless pit and cast Satan in there. Again, it wasn't God that did it. Okay. So that's why we see that God is the judge, but he has workers to do, you know, the dirty work. He has the law degree. Okay, they don't. All right, so, uh, and then in 2 Kings 19, we read about that last week, and we can mention it again. That is when uh, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So again, remember, you only need one angel to, yeah, kill the whole world. They have no problem doing it. All right, let's look at verses 14 and 15. I want to move on to uh, Nahum chapter two. So in verse 14 here, God is talking about an individual. This individual we find out is named Sennacherib. He is the king of Assyria who ruled from Nineveh and he was killed by his two sons in the house of Nishrach, his God. We read, and the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image 
and the molten image, I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. So God is no longer talking to the nation of Assyria. He's addressing one person, and this is the king uh, of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. That's where the king lived. And uh, what we find out is that there was, is it called patricide? When kids kill their parents? Patric- is that what it's called? So that's how this king was killed. He was killed in uh, the um, temple of his God. And this is all a prophecy, again, that Nahum explains and comes to pass in the next uh, several years. So not only did he have this guy killed and he was killed by his children, but because he was killed in the temple, what do we find out about when someone is killed in a holy place? What does that do to the holy place? It desecrates it and then they can't use it anymore. So God killed a couple of Syrians with one stone. All right. Uh, So anyway, just more prophecies that are fulfilled. Um, (laughs) Okay, Nahum verse 15. Nahum reminds Judah to worship God, keep the feasts, and not to go the way of the heathen. Uh, And this is important. Nahum just throws this in at the end, and he is reminding God's people to obey God. He's showing them, look, this is what's going to happen. Now, here's something else to understand. To the best of my knowledge, this was written by Nahum, but he did not go to Nineveh and proclaim it. It was sent there and it was read. Now, I don't know if that's true and I didn't have time to look it up, but everything that I found, that was what it was pointed to. So he told this prophecy to Judah. Judah is the one that heard this prophecy firsthand, and it was written down and then sent to Nineveh. Now, if I'm wrong, please forgive me and correct me on that, uh, but this was explained. Uh, that's why uh, it, is, it is written this way, where it's written to the king that, okay, now about you, you are going to die, and here's where you're going to die and how you're going to die. All right, so Nahum chapter 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is from the World History Encyclopedia, and I quote, While other great cities of ancient Mesopotamia were recognizable from their ruins, of Nineveh there was not a trace. I have several more secular sources that said the same thing, okay, that explain the destruction of Nineveh as being absolute to the point where no one knew they existed. So let's read the first few verses in chapter 2, and we'll jump right in. He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. (laughs) 
Okay, let's stop there and let's go over a couple verses. So Nahum chapter 2. In verse 1, the prophet speaks of the coming judgment as imminent and not far distant. He says, he that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. So those in Nineveh are being told your destroyer is right in front of you. From the time that this prophecy was read to the time of their destruction was less than 40 years. Okay, They had already crossed the threshold. There was no turning back. There was no getting right with God anymore. You had your chance. It's over. Now comes the destruction. Okay, who destroys Nineveh? Nebuchadnezzar. Very good. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? Joe? What's that? Um, okay, you ready for this? So the answer is yes and no. What do I mean by that? Was Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon? He was. Was he the king of Babylon when he destroyed Nineveh? No, he was not. Okay, good question, Nick. So let's go over a little bit of history as far as how this works. So one thing that's really kind of a pain in the neck when you're dealing with world history is that boundaries change a lot. So nowadays, we could all look at a blank map without the names of the countries and we could identify. And we would have to go back to a pretty substantial war, which is when those borders were changed. I can't think of too many borders that were changed too much after, say, World War II, right? And, you know, the whole thing happened, and then, unfortunately, America wimped out and wouldn't let Patton roll into Russia and finish the job. So then Russia held on to a bunch of countries, and then, you know, after a while, everyone got sick of communism, and Romania stood up and killed all the communists, and, the, you know, it went on through all these different places. So they got their nations back, but you usually have a big war that changes nations. Back in these times, you got to remember, there would be an uprising, and they would round up all the people of the Roman Empire in that city and kill them all and kick them out, and they're like, all right, we're free again, and they would remain free until they would send another garrison over and try to crush the rebellion. And so the, the borders and everything, they changed quite a bit. Now, I didn't bring any maps. You're, you're lucky I even brought a whiteboard. But if you think of the Middle East, the Assyrian Empire went from uh, Egypt up north uh, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean through Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and into the very uh, south east corner of modern day Turkey. If you're not good with geography without a map, I am sorry. I know I'm not. I'm just going to be confusing somebody. Then you start heading east and you enter into what's called the Mesopotamian Valley. Mesopotamian Valley is the Tigris and the Euphrates River that come together and converge all the way down in the, what sea is that, Louis? all the way on the, the Kuwait side of the Sinai Peninsula. No, no, no. The, yeah, all the way on the east of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I can't think of it. What's that? 
No, Red Sea's on the other side. Red Sea's on the on on the west. It might be the Arabian. Okay. So anyway, if you follow the Tigris and the Euphrates, at the top of the Tigris or the up north, you find Nineveh. You follow that all the way down, and on the Euphrates, you run into Babylon. So that means that the Assyrian Empire contained parts of Egypt, all of Israel, all of Lebanon, all of Syria, most of Iran, uh, most of Iraq, a good portion of Saudi Arabia, small portion of Turkey, took over a large area. Nineveh was all the way to the north, and Babylon was more all the way to the east, up against or leading over to the um, Arabian Sea, is what we think it is, but without a map. I, what's that? I don't know. And my Bible, I don't think, has any maps, or if it does, they're not, they're not very helpful. So that's the Mediterranean. That's more of Israel. That is, yeah, so my maps aren't helping. Anyway, okay, so fo fo follow, follow along, follow along. Babylon, the city, and Babylonia, the region, was fought over a lot. So even though it was part of the Assyrian Empire, you had the Chaldeans and one other group, I can't remember who, and the Assyrians that were constantly fighting over who could control Babylon. Because Babylon was a major trade town. It was, you know, the amount of wealth you would get from this town was substantial. So everybody wanted it. And you also got to remember, there were no telephones or Wi-Fi or, I mean, how long do you think it took if Babylon was attacked for word to get up to Nineveh? Yeah, I mean, it was a long, you know, it was a long time. So it's like, oh, okay, we're being attacked. Well, let's get some armies together. And then you got to send letters out to get those guys. And then you got to march them on. It was not a fast process is my point. So it was constantly in flux going back and forth. At the time that Nebuchadnezzar rises up, the Chaldeans are now in charge of Babylon when the Assyrians used to be and just were. So now Babylon is rising up as a Chaldean empire when you see it before as part of the Assyrian empire. So what was the question I was answering? I already, I totally forgot. Okay, so how, how that worked and how Babylon and, and worked with the Assyrians. So remember, Babylon at one point was part of the Assyrian empire, but it rose up in power as Assyria was becoming weak, and then it overthrew and took over the Assyrian empire. So that's, that's how it worked. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, but at the time in 612 BC, when Nineveh was taken over, he was the general under Nabopolassar, I think was his dad, and he was the king of Babylon, the first king of the Chaldean Empire that ruled over Babylon. All right, so okay, here's a question that no one's going to know the answer to. What did God call Babylon in the Bible? Nope. Good guess. Let's go to 
Jeremiah, and we're going to go to chapter 50. Chapter 50, verse 23, and we'll find the answer in there. God has a name for Babylon that he gives to Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 23. So Jeremiah is right after Psalms and Proverbs. There's also Ecclesiastes and Songs of Solomon. It's before Isaiah, before Daniel, before Ezekiel, after the Psalms. Anyone have the answer for me? What does God call Babylon in the Bible? What's that? Hmm. The hammer. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 23. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? How has Babylon become a desolation among the nations? So the prophecy of Jeremiah. Keep in mind at the time, Babylon was not a desolation among the nations. Babylon was currently surrounding and beating the snot out of Israel in the third siege. So God calls Babylon the hammer of the whole earth. Why? They did. They ruled the whole earth. But more than that, Nick, when they were in the process of taking over the whole earth, They destroyed everything. Babylon was one of those nations where if you woke up and saw the Babylonians surrounding your city, the bravest men of the city would get together and contemplate committing suicide. Because you are not going to win. And when they got in the city, it was going to be so horrible that it was considered by all, we should just kill our own wives and children and then turn our swords on ourselves rather than let the Babylonians win. Didn't that happen? Oh yeah, several times. Happened in uh, the nation of Israel as well. Yep, there were several times when uh, nations would uh, turn on themselves because they said, there's no way I can let my loved ones fall into their hands. The Jews did that with uh, Masada in, uh, uh, after, uh, after the time of Christ. Uh, they were surrounded and cut off, and they had a, they had a mountaintop um, fortress that I don't know the Roman uh, ruler built, but it was self-sustaining. It was, up on, it was a big mesa that had sheer cliffs. And they lived up there for years, and the Romans took them three years, I think. And they finally, yep, to build a ramp and be able to get up there and to defeat them. They had it set up to where it caught rainwater, enough to water the crops and, and enough for drinking water and bathing. They grew their own crops up there. It was amazing. And, uh, yeah, they lived up there for years. And when they finally got to the top, they pushed open the gate and uh, climbed over the walls, and all the Jews in there were dead. There was only about a half dozen women and children who were hiding out in a storm drain, and they were the ones that were able to tell the story that 
everyone decided it was better to kill ourselves rather than to fall into the hands of the Romans. Yep. Okay, so Babylon was considered the hammer of the whole earth. So Nahum tells the Ninevites to prepare and fortify so they can stand against their enemy. Now, Nineveh, understand this. In verse 1 of Nahum chapter 2, Nahum tells them, keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. Nineveh already had 100-foot walls. What was Nineveh going to do to fortify itself? This is talked about rhetorically. It's not a real suggestion. It's saying you need to do whatever you can because of who is coming after you. But it wasn't ever assumed that they would have a chance. Now, Assyria, in verse 2, we find Assyria has been abusive to Jacob and Israel, the northern and the southern uh, kingdoms. And this is the reason for the destruction uh, of Israel. I'm sorry. This is the reason for the destruction of Nineveh, because they have been abusive to God's people. Now, in verse 3, Uh, This verse is describing those who are coming to destroy Nineveh. So now it's explaining to the Ninevites, these are the guys that are going to show up. And it talks about their shields. It talks about what they're wearing. It talks about their chariots. It goes into all this detail. So their shields will be made red. What do you think that's talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Guess what, Ninevites? It's your blood that's going to be on their shields. It talks about how what they're wearing, okay? It talks about how they're wearing scarlet. It means that their army is going to be well-outfitted and rich. They're going to be impressive. What does it say about their chariots? Yeah, the chariots shall be with flaming torches. Keep going. The might. I was looking at the last part of that verse. Okay. Come on, keep going. The last part of verse three. What does that mean? It's going to shake the earth when they approach. There are so many chariots coming that it's going to shake the ground and you're going to see the trees moving. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon at the time. His son's name was Nebuchadnezzar, the general of the army, soon to be king. Uh, In verse 4, the chariots will rage in the streets. What does that mean? Okay, but think of this. If the chariots are in the streets, what, is that, what does that mean? They're in the wall. He, he's telling the Ninevites, your wall didn't do anything. The chariots are raging in the streets. Now, the Ninevites don't know what to make of this, but we know how the battle was fought. We know how the Babylonians won. It was unbelievable, and we're going to talk about it right now. It says that they will be so numerous 
that they will have trouble fitting even in the broad ways. They are going, they shall jostle one uh, one another against each other on the broad ways. There are going to be so many chariots that they're going to have trouble fitting down your roads. Okay, they're going to be swift and powerful like lightning. Now in verse five, uh, the word, you know what? We didn't, I don't think we read verse five yet. So let's read, <laughs> let's read verses five, six, Let's read verses five and six, and we'll talk talk about this. That's all we need. Verses five and six, and we'll probably be done after this. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. Okay, so let's see how this worked. This is a foretelling of exactly how it happens. Now, the term worthies in verse 5 are the so-called heroes of Nebuchadnezzar, maybe the captains, those that are in charge and important. And it says that they stumble. So that means that they meet resistance at some point. So what happens, and we're going we're gonna to get into this a little bit as far as the history goes, when they attack the city, they come up against this wall and they are not able to get through. So then they go into siege mode. They laid siege to, from, to Nineveh for guess how long? <laughs> okay, so typically when we're talking about a siege, we're talking about multiple years. Remember, when the Romans would lay siege to a city, they would go with men and provisions and a plan to be there for how long? 25 years. That was the plan for the Roman army. They did not lose. They did not go home. They made it into your city. All right? They were sieging Nineveh for three months. So what happened here is they came upon Nineveh. It says that they stumbled, meaning they met resistance that caused them to stop. Then they make haste to the wall. It's a siege. Now, the defenses shall be prepared is talking about the Ninevites. They were ready for this. Okay, How many times did the Ninevites stand on their walls and laugh at the enemies that came to them? So many times that's all that's they knew what they were doing. Okay. Now, verse six is a big verse. Nahum wrote this 40 years prior to it happening. The gates of the river are opened and the palace is dissolved. What is this talking about? There's a flood. They didn't. That was the Babylonians taken over, or that's the Persians taken over the Babylonians. This was a natural occurrence. There were monsoon-like rains. The Tigris River flooded, and it washed away the wall. It literally tore away the dirt under this massive wall, and the walls collapsed. They just got washed away with the river. These walls that were reported to be 100 feet high, 50 feet thick, they literally just got washed away 
and the Babylonians just marched in and slaughtered the place. They were laying siege around the whole city. But the city looks roughly like that, and this is the Tigris River that ran across two and a half miles of wall of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. And the Babylonians were surrounding the whole thing. And then when the river started to flood and it came up and it just wiped out the wall on the western side and the Babylonians just walked right in. It was true. Now, in the insurance world, what would we call that? Okay. It's an act of God. That's what they call it, right? When something falls out of the sky and hits your car, they call it an act of God. And there's insurance for that. What is this? It's an act of God. God said that the river is going to do it, and it's going to do it this way. And it said you will be dissolved. Now, I want to read you two quotes from two history books. <clears throat> this first one is from the book, The Rise and Fall of Assyria. It was pillaged and burned and then raised to the ground so completely as to evidence the implacable hatred enkindled in the minds of subject nations by the fierce and cruel Assyrian government. This next one is a little longer. <clears throat> It says, Nineveh was laid waste as ruthlessly and completely as her kings had once ravaged Babylon. The city was put to the torch, the population was slaughtered and enslaved, and the palace so recently built by Ashurbanipal was sacked and destroyed. At one blow, Assyria disappeared from history. The Jews recall Nineveh vengefully as the bloody city full of lies and robbery. In a little while, all but the mightiest of the great kings were forgotten and all their royal palaces were in ruins under the drifting sands. Remember what I said? History forgot about them and people were told that the Bible was not true because it talked of this fictitious, massive city called Nineveh. 200 years after its capture, Xenophon's 10,000 marched over the mounds that had been Nineveh and never suspected that these were the site of the ancient metropolis that had ruled half the world. Xenophon was a, a Greek military leader uh, from Athens, and he was marching across that land with over 10,000 troops, and they had no idea that that was the location of Nineveh. Not a stone remained visible of all the temples with which Assyria's warriors had sought to beautify their greatest capital. Even Asher, the everlasting God, was dead. That comes from the book, Our Oriental Heritage. Now that to me sounds like the supernatural destruction of an empire by God. God said when it was going to happen. God said how it was going to happen. God said who his instrument of justice was going to be. And the Ninevites, with all these warnings, because they knew how strong they were fortified, laughed. 
And then God said, okay, it's time. And one thing we got to remember is as Christians, we never have to fear a ruler or a power, no matter how great they are. Because in one moment, God can bring them to dust. It is all in the hands of the Lord. He had the, the rains come, the river washed away these great walls. What do you think the Ninevites put their faith and their trust in? Yeah, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. Okay, But we trust in the Lord our God. The Ninevites trusted in their walls, and God brought them down to the ground. He, he made them level with the ground, and they marched in, and they killed everybody, and they destroyed the city so completely that for 2,000 years, nobody even knew it was a city. No one even knew it was the capital of a world empire. Carlos, what you got? That's right. You got to remember... <clears throat> old Patrick, he's not a uh, Republican or a Democrat. I'm a monarchist. I'm in favor of a king. And it's not a king on the list of a dozen kings that might be good. It's a list of one. That's who I'm waiting for. It's the only one that's going to make a difference. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be done. Lord, we love you. Thank you for helping us get through the rest of chapter one and the first half of chapter two, help us to uh, finish up Nahum next week. You are awesome. We just ask that you would bless our weekend, help us to have a good night, help us to have some good rest tomorrow, help us to spend time with those we love. And, uh, and God, we just ask that you would bless all we do and say here in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right.